Well, today we're going to continue in our series in the Gospel of Luke that's titled Upside Down. And so I'd invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, verses 35 to 48. You can find that on page 871 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. Let me give you a heads up on our sermon today. We're preaching about the end times. That's what you wanted to hear on Palm Sunday, isn't it? So the title of today's sermon is The Coming King. And that fits perfectly, I think, with Palm Sunday because when Jesus rode into Jerusalem for the last time on a young donkey, it was a celebration of his first coming as a suffering servant king. But over and over that week in Jerusalem, the week that we will celebrate this week, Jesus taught about his second coming, wherein he will return on a mighty war horse as a conquering warrior king. And so we can't look back on Palm Sunday without also looking forward. And this is exactly what today's passage brings out. Two main applications. First, be prepared for the coming king because you'll be responsible to the coming king. And so with that said, if you're able, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. If you're not able to stand, stand with us in your heart. Again, today's passage is Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager, whom his master will set over his household, to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's reply together. Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. So here's how I almost got arrested in middle school. My parents allowed me to uh, sleep over with a friend of mine, which now that I'm a parent and I look back on the times that I had sleepovers with my friends, I can't remember a single one where we didn't do something really inappropriate. So parents, be careful with sleepovers, all right? But that's not the point of this. The point of this is how I almost got arrested. So 
My friend lived on a farm, just like I did, but his farm was close to a subdivision. And so when we got bored one night, we decided that we would go over to the subdivision and have some fun. And the way that we would do that is we'd pull the old ring the doorbell at midnight trick and run away. You know, where you ring someone's doorbell, you run away, but you you stand close enough to see them come to the porch and stumble out the door and go, what in the world's going on? This was before the days of video cameras on the doorbell, okay? And so we did this to multiple houses. It was a blast. And we were finally headed back toward my friend's house. And I saw one more big, glorious house. And I was like, we got to hit this one, man. And my friend, like his face went wide and he was like, no way, we can't do that one. I'm like, why not? He's like, because we've hit that one before and they are really angry and they are waiting for us to do it again. And so what does an idiot like me do? Think, well, that's all the more reason to hit that house. And so I run up, ring the doorbell three times, and we run over behind some tall grass and hide to see what happens. But before we can even hit the grass, almost immediately, it's like the entire house exploded with light. And this angry man bursts out the front door, and he's yelling, and he's cursing, he's got a flashlight. I'm pretty sure he had a gun too, but I was too afraid to look over the top of the grass. And he comes over threatening, I mean, directly to where we're at, like he knows where we're at. And he said, the police are on their way, and I'm going to find you before they get here. And he shines the flashlight right where we are in the grass. Now, I have never in my life prayed that hard. <laughs> Lord, if you'll please just get me out of this. But you know what? By then, it was too late. There's no getting out of it. And so what's the point of all this besides that I'm an idiot It's a picture of a person not living with the end in mind. I was so caught up in the moment of what I was doing that I didn't even think about the consequences of my behavior. And when they came, there was nothing I could do about it. My friends, Jesus doesn't want us to be idiots. And going back to the beginning of the section of Luke that we've been in, all the way back to chapter 11, verse 33, when Matt Reynolds preached... Jesus said these words to his disciples. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Now if King Jesus himself comes as the light of the world, then to enter his kingdom is to also shine like a lamp in a dark place. It is to look completely different from the world, upside down. He then goes on to say that this means things like Don't be hypocrites, even though the leaven of hypocrisy is everywhere. Don't be afraid of man, but fear God, even though you will face death. Don't be denying your need for God, even though you will be on trial. Don't be greedy, even though riches may be poured into your lap. Don't be anxious, even though you're giving your riches away. And all this then leads up to to the beginning of today's passage where Jesus says this. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. You see the connection there between the lamps and shining? So that means that we add to this list, don't be spiritually sleeping even though it's the middle of the night. How? That's my question. How are we supposed to not only shine like a lamp in a dark place, but continue to shine even in the dead of night when it seems like there's no purpose in shining? There's one way, 
one way. Only by living with the end in mind. In other words, be prepared for the coming king. So as we've just seen, Jesus says, beginning in verse 35, Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. So there are three images that Jesus gives here for living with the end in mind. Kiddos, if you're looking at your drawing sheet, it asks the question, what are the two images from verse 35? So there you go, there's the answer. First, stay dressed for action, or literally, let your loins stay girded. I like that King James language. You're familiar with the long flowing robes that people wore in those days. And so in order to do any physically demanding activity, you had to to gird up your loins. That is, you had to take those robes and pull them up and tuck them into your belt. And so this is the way in which God's people were commanded to eat the Passover the night before the exodus from slavery in Egypt. Always ready for him to show up. The second image is to keep your lamps burning. And you can think of this like the shape of a, of a genie lamp, okay? And so it has a hole on top for oil and a hole in the front for a wick. And that means to keep it burning, you had to continually add oil and continually trim the wick. And this is the way in which God's people were commanded to maintain the lamp that burned before the Holy of Holies inside the tabernacle. Always ready for him to show up. The third image is servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding. Now in that day, weddings could last for days and even up to a week. Much of it depended on when the food and wine ran out. So there was no way of the master knowing the specific end time and therefore no way of the servants knowing when he would return. They just had to be always ready for him to show up. Combine these three images together and what you get isn't just a sense of like vigilant readiness. But doing so particularly in the middle of the night. Which is what Jesus describes later as the second or third watch. That is like midnight to 6 a.m. So what's Jesus saying? Well, let me give you three things. One, the world is a spiritually dark and hostile place. And as the saying goes, the night is darkest before the dawn. The Bible doesn't hide that it will only get darker and more hostile in the time between Jesus' first coming and his second. That's the time in which we live. And so to be a servant of Jesus in this, this time here is like being up in the middle of a dark and hostile night. Which then leads to the second thing. The middle of the night is a spiritually sleepy time. Not just the middle of the night, Sunday morning too, right? During the sermon can be a spiritually sleepy time. But just like most people sleep at night, the Bible describes the world as being in a spiritual slumber, except for the servants of Jesus. So think of it this way. Middle of the night, you're driving with your family, everybody falls asleep, right? What do you do in that scenario? Now, of course, what you do if you start to get sleepy is stop driving, right? Don't push it. I'm not saying that. But I asked my family group, if you're in this scenario and you're trying to keep driving in that scenario, what do you do to stay awake? And so here are some of the answers that they gave. 
Listen to music or a podcast or a book. Dance, all right? Drink coffee or an energy drink. Yeah, that's right, I see it. Call someone, talk to them. Roll down the windows or blast the AC. They get better here. Put your hand above you. That way when you fall asleep, what happens? Okay, I've done that one. And finally, straight Will Smith, slap yourself to stay awake. Okay? Do what you got to do. What I'm getting at here is in order to stay spiritually awake when everybody else is out in the world, you got to do everything you can to fight off that spiritual slumber. And that leads to the third thing. The battle to stay awake is a battle between fantasy and reality. When we fall asleep, we enter a subconscious state. And the abstract things that we experience there are not physical reality. And so here's the thing. The world for now gets to live in a spiritual fantasy. But you, servant of Jesus, you got to live in reality. And that's a heavy thing, y'all. Like, smile, God loves you. Christians should be happy and joyous. Yes, but it's heavy to be a Christian when everybody else is spiritually asleep. Why? Because it's more natural to sleep. It's more natural to think there is no God. And even if there is, he has no authority in my life. And even if he does, he has no right to send me to hell. The world says, man, all that about God is a fantasy. Distract yourself with other and more important things than those heavy thoughts. So how upside down is this? In order for you to live in a reality that the world calls fantasy, you have to go against your very human nature. It's reflected in these words from Paul. We, the servants of Jesus, look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen, the things that we can touch and taste and hold, that are physical reality to us, those things are transient, Paul says. But the things that are unseen, the things that you can't touch, taste, smell, grab hold of as physical reality. Those things are eternal. And listen, I don't know know how you struggle, but my default reality is to assume that while the master's gone, he already isn't happy with me. And so when he returns, he's going to really let me have it. That's my default reality. But on the basis of the gospel, that's a fantasy. That's not true. So every day I have to smack myself, beat the gospel down into my hard heart in order to stay awake to the reality that the master already says of me, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that, I think, is living in reality for the servant of Jesus. But this is also a heavy thing 
Because it's not just natural to sleep, it's easier to sleep. Listen, man, it's, it's easier to, to comfort yourself in a way like this. Like, I don't have a sin problem. And even if I did, the only consequences for it would come in this life, not the next. I don't need to worry about that right now. The world says, man, all that stuff about sin, that's a fantasy. Distract yourself with other more important things. So how upside down is this? In order for you to live in a reality that the world calls fantasy, you have to go against your very nature and a need for comfort. To agree with Paul when he says, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime. Okay, that's figurative. What's he talking about? He's talking about sin. Put it off. Not in orgies and drunkenness. Not in sexual immorality and sensuality. Not in quarreling and jealousy. Artists Shane and Shane have this old song that's titled Waging War. And it's about our constant battle against sin. The servant of Jesus, man, there ain't no vacations from battling your sin. You don't get to the weekend and say, I'm not going to fight off. I'm going to take a break from fighting off my sin this weekend. No, we got to have constant vigilance in our holiness. And so the words of this song go like this. That I might see this day, this waging war, might go away and be no more. That I might see his face and hear him say, Son, welcome home. The war is over. Like your battle for holiness won forever. No more war. And that is living in reality for the servant of Jesus. And the reality is that the master is coming, yes. But also that as Revelation 22.12 says, he's bringing a reward with him. Listen to this in verse 37. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service. And have them recline at table. And he will come and serve them. Y'all look at the character of our master on display here. He doesn't barge in the door and go straight to bed. He doesn't quip, yeah, you better be awake and doing your job. He doesn't immediately start dishing out commands. What What he does is this. He takes the lamp, and he girds up his loins, and he has his servants sit down so that he can serve them, reward them, celebrate them, feed them, renew them. Man, how upside down is that? Like, what a master, a master with a heart like that. Wouldn't that make you want to serve him? 
to stay awake in the middle of the night. To meet him at the door face to face. Doesn't that give you a sense of expectation in the place of dread? Servant of Jesus. That's living with the end in mind. Yes, sobered by the reality of his judgment, but trusting his heart for reward. So be prepared for the coming king. And be prepared for the coming king because you'll be responsible to the coming king. This section begins with Peter asking an interesting question in response to Jesus' parable. Verse 41. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Now we're not sure of the motivation behind Peter's question here or who exactly he even means by us and all. But the way Jesus answers seems to have some application to all servants of Jesus, but especially to those who are privileged with greater knowledge of him and often position for him. Because knowing him equals the responsibility to obey him. And when that is not the natural flow, then as I have heard it said before, information without application, leads to constipation. Okay? Let that sink in for a minute. Jesus does not want us to be spiritually constipated, church. Instead, he would have us to be faithful and wise managers or stewards. A steward was a servant put in charge by his master in order to manage the estate in his absence. But I want you to notice that the steward's responsibility is not defined so much in terms of power, but service. Caring for the other servants, feeding and nourishing them on a daily basis. Who then is that, Jesus asks. And then he answers with four examples. Three unfaithful, one faithful. The first unfaithful example is what I call the evil steward. Now, if you want to think of this in terms of the Lion King, this would be like Scar. Y'all remember Scar? Scar, who in the absence of the king, stewarded the kingdom to serve his own evil purposes. Jesus describes this in verse 45. But if that servant says to himself... My master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him pieces and put him with the unfaithful. So check this out. The evil servant actually does similarly as the parable of the rich fool last week. He looks at his privileged circumstances And he speaks to his own soul about what he will do with those circumstances. And then similarly, he reasons without the end in mind. There is no judgment to be prepared for anytime soon. Therefore, I'm free to do whatever I want. When the master, when I see him coming from a distance, then I can start getting everything ready. 
but I'll be okay for a while. And so look at how this specifically plays out. Instead of feeding and nourishing the servants as he was commanded, he beats them, takes their food for himself. What is this today? Well, this is a person considered to be a servant of Jesus who takes whatever knowledge and position they have, especially church leaders, and whether that knowledge and position is in the church or in the home or in relationships or whatever platform of influence, great or small, they take it and they use it to serve themselves and to harm others and to indulge their sin. And so wherever this kind of evil is being brought to light and put to an end, and y'all, it is more and more, right? Spiritual abuse coming to the surface everywhere and being called out for what it is. Wherever that is coming to the surface, great or small, I am grateful for that. And may every bit of it be brought to light. Because Jesus does not want his bride to be abused in any part. And his fury, and his fury over this is seen in the fact that he says that such a person will be cut in pieces and put with the unfaithful. That is dismembered and cast out, just like Scar by the end of the movie, eaten alive by the hyenas. In other words, such unrepentant unfaithfulness to the bride of Christ proves the true nature of the person that they weren't actually a servant of Jesus to begin with. The second example that Jesus gives is what I call the lazy servant. So going back to the Lion King, this would be like Shinzi. You remember Shinzi? Shinzi was a hyena who was Scar's leading goon. And she knew the true king, but she went along with the will of the evil steward. Jesus describes this in verse 47. And that steward, or that servant, who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. So here we are introduced to this reality. Failing to be responsible to the master can come by way of commission or omission. That is, intentional sin or unintentional sin. The lazy servant could genuinely say, well, I didn't do no wrong. And then the master looks at him and says, yeah, but you didn't do no right. So what is this today? Well, this is the person considered to be a servant of Jesus who takes whatever knowledge and position they have, whether that's in the church or in the home or in relationships or whatever platform of influence, great or small. And they don't use it for evil but they also don't use it for good. Let me give you an example. In the book Undaunted Courage, the author Stephen Ambrose tells the story of Lewis and Clark's expedition through the American West. And so they're at this particularly dangerous part of the expedition in a new territory. So lots of unknowns, lots of hostile um, realities around them. And so they make camp. And the next morning, one of the soldiers, Alexander Hamilton Willard, is found asleep on the night watch. He's the guy who was supposed to be 
awake in the night, watching for those hostile realities. And this was an offense punishable by death because it could have gotten everyone killed. Now, Willard was tried by court-martial, and instead of being killed, they mercifully sentenced him to four consecutive days of 100 lashes well laid on. It was a severe beating, and one in which many people didn't even survive. Why? He didn't kill anyone. Yeah, but he also didn't save anyone, did he? The same is true for us. When we fail to be actively obedient to the master, like we may not be cut in pieces and put with the unfaithful, but the return of the master will still have consequences. That's what Jesus is communicating here, I think. And then the third example that Jesus gives is what I call the ignorant servant. Now, if you go to the characters in The Lion King, I think the ignorant servant is reflected in Ed. Y'all remember Ed? He's the hyena who tags along with Shenzi. Now, Ed, as you can probably tell by the picture, even if you haven't seen the movie, is the kind of guy who's too busy sniffing his backside to know what's really going on. Okay? Jesus describes the ignorant servant in verse 48. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. So the behavior is the same as the lazy servant, but the knowledge of the master's will is less. Therefore, the consequence of disobedience is less. And so this should teach us a couple of things. One, No servants of Jesus can claim ignorance as an excuse for disobedience. Romans 1 tells us that all humanity is without excuse before God. Two reasons. Because creation reveals a creator. And two, our consciences that cry out for justice reveal that there is a judge. This is what Romans tells us. But servants of Jesus are especially without excuse. Why? Because we know. We know him. If the ignorant servant did not know the the will of his master, he was still responsible to it, and he should have sought it out. Two, there are degrees of responsibility, therefore there are degrees of discipline. And can I just say, for a people who have so much access to the truth about Jesus and to the teaching of his word, good teaching, his word. This ought to be really sobering to us. It's what makes me honestly not want to get another degree, even though that's the subculture in which we live. I'll get mailers, y'all, that say, what you need is the next degree. And I'm like, no, I don't. (laughs) Because of this. I think about my brothers and sisters in Africa who took the smallest kernel of God's word and they obeyed it with the greatest of devotion. I think about the family who the first time they heard the gospel, we said, they were like, what do we do now? We're like, "Uh, go and share it with your neighbors. You know, and we're like, okay, we'll see you later. And our expectation when we returned a month later is that maybe they shared it with a few folks here and there. 
But instead, we found out that they took two weeks off of plowing, which was their entire livelihood, to go and tell everyone in the entire region the story that they had heard about Jesus. They took the smallest kernel of the truth about God that they knew, and they obeyed it with the greatest of devotion. And listen, I want more simplicity in my Christian life like that. Listen, this is why in my spare time, I'm not reading stacks of books and not after more degrees. Why? More things that I then am responsible to do that I'm probably not going to go do. It's not saying I don't want to learn. I do want to learn. But I want to be obedient to what I learn. I don't want to have this massive head and this tiny little body, right? doesn't go and do anything with it. I want to be like them. I want to be like the fourth example that Jesus urges us toward. I call it the faithful servant. In the Lion King, this would be Rafiki. Remember Rafiki? Asante sana, squash banana, da 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 da. That's Rafiki, okay? And he is found waiting for the king, and he even helps to hasten his return. And Jesus describes this in verse 43. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. Now it's not just that there are degrees of responsibility that coincide with degrees of discipline. But there are degrees of faithfulness that coincide with degrees of reward. Now we're after more here than just getting out of a beating, church. After more than that, believe in the character of the master. The picture is not just him having his servants recline at table so that he can serve them. But the picture is him endowing them with even more responsibility. Listen, the greatest honor is not to share the king's table, my friends, but to share the king's rule. To share his throne. Yeah, I will come and feed you and serve you and reward you for your faithfulness. But you know what? I want you to come and share the throne. I want you to rule with me. Wow. And so, church, unto that end, may you be compelled to be responsible to the coming king. A reward is coming. Well, thanks to a number of you, I have realized that I have this habit of telling stories and then leaving them on a cliffhanger. Okay? So let me return to what I call the parable of the doorbell ringing idiot. So last we saw him, he was hunkered down behind some grass, peeing his pants and praying his heart out. And well, those prayers were suddenly interrupted by the sound of approaching sirens and blue lights. And so I told my friend, on the count of three, let's run for it, across the field, back to his house. And he swears to this day that I actually took off on two and yelled three when I was about 50 yards across the field. (laughs) Probably true. The field we ran across was actually a tomato patch. And if you're a gardener, you understand that in order to plant a healthy tomato patch, you've got to put something in the ground, like a really tall and sturdy stick, that allows that tomato vine to grow up around it. Well, in this case, the farmer, good farmer, had used big, thick tobacco sticks. Now, 
The Winter Olympics was recently. Do any of you know what slalom skiing is? It's where a skier goes down a double black diamond about 60 miles an hour, skirting around these poles that are in the ground. You know, you're not supposed to hit the poles. You're supposed to go around. Well, think of this like a bad slalom skier, okay? Running across this patch and just like, bam, 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 just knocking down poles as I, as I go, okay? But we made it back to the house, and we immediately jumped in bed and put the covers over us so the pe- police couldn't find us. So yes, that means in the end, the idiot got out of it and lived to tell the tale. Here I am. I hope the person that I knocked on that house doesn't listen to this sermon. They might come after me. But me getting out of it and living to tell the tale, isn't that the false hope that we live by when we don't live with the end in mind? We don't think, you know, hey man, at the judgment, if... If there is a judgment, right? No, we think this way. At the judgment, God will see that I've done more good than bad. Or, God will see that there are others who are far worse than me. Or, God won't be upset because he's going to forgive everyone. Or, God might punish me a little, but he'll eventually let me out. Or, if worse comes to worse... God will just annihilate me. But judgment forever? Like, really? Okay, we'll worry about that when and if the time comes. So come on, y'all. Let's ring one more doorbell. Right? We got time. But the sirens and the blue lights are already coming. You may not be able to hear them just yet, but they're coming. And you might say, well, how do you know, man? Isn't this just like end times fanaticism? Or are you one of those guys who's being a spiritual abuser by taking the word of God to to make people afraid? No, I don't delight in the judgment of God. I don't delight in wielding God's word over people to scare them. But I am certain of the judgment. And here's where it comes from. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now. See that? See the transition? Like, before Christ? Okay, there's some overlooking of that there. Don't have time to unpack it, but it's different. The times now, in between the first and the second coming, He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because, there's a reason. He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed... And how do we know this? Of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Listen, if if God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead, and if God has made him king over all humanity, and the judge who will bring the justice that we all cry out for, then what Johnny Cash said is about to come true. Johnny said there's a man going around taking names, and he decides who to free. And who to blame. And everybody won't be treated all the same. So listen to the words long written down. Before the man comes around. Think of it this way. If you were on the way to capital punishment. And I put my innocent child in your place. To save your life. 
and that child's life was taken. And you weren't wrecked to the core by that. And forever grateful and devoted to a crime-free life. How furious would I be as a father? No, 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 no. Back to death row you go and there's no more sacrifice for you. And so let that cut to your heart now so that it will not be cut to pieces later. That's the invitation. A soul that's cut to the heart always ends up asking this question. How then shall we be saved? That's how you know if your heart is cut today. To be asking this question. And I answer you, here's how. In order to look to the second coming and be ready, you have to look to the first coming. At his first coming, Jesus was always prepared for the coming judgment. Right after today's passage, Jesus says this, I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. And I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Like he knew the judgment of God for our sins was to be poured out on him. He knew the fire that was to be cast on the earth was going to be cast on him, so that it would not be cast upon us at that time. And he still marched into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday instead of running away. Like, I have no category for how courageous that is. And the most vivid picture of it that I think I can find in the whole scriptures is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Everyone falls asleep. Everyone lets their lamps go out. Except Jesus. He stands in our place, wide awake, as the one who was prepared. The only one. And not only was Jesus prepared, he was also always responsible in the face of coming judgment. It wasn't just that he stayed awake, but when the blue lights and the sirens did come that night, he was busy doing exactly what the Father had told him to do. As commanded, he poured his life like a shepherd into his followers. Again, I think the most vivid picture that comes to mind is in Gethsemane. The mob arrives to arrest Jesus. And rather than running away, he says, I told you that I'm the one you're looking for. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom the Father had given him. He lost not one. Everyone scatters. Everyone's 50 yards away yelling two, yelling three. No one wants to own their part in this except Jesus, the one who had no part. And he stands in our place as the one who was responsible, the only one. And so that means he was the wise and faithful steward who deserved to be blessed and served by the master. But for your sake... He became the evil steward who was cut to pieces on the cross and put with the unfaithful in the grave. He was numbered with the transgressors and they made his grave with the wicked, Isaiah says. And this is how the one cut to the heart can be saved right here. This is how the idiot gets out of it and lives to tell the tale. Right now, this morning, cut to the heart, you run to Jesus like a bad slalom skier. 
Those excuses are standing up in your face across the patch. And you're running them over. You're saying, man, it's all a fantasy. Run that over. He doesn't love me. Run that over. I can do it later. Run that over. What will people think? Run it over and run to Jesus. He's available to you. Run to safety. Run to reward. And not just so that you can avoid judgment, but so that when it comes, you can be rewarded. You see, when Jesus rises and ascends, he becomes the master who will return. And so to run to him is to be filled with his spirit and empowered to be a faithful and responsible servant. Though weak, though making mistakes, though waging war day in and day out and many times falling short in battles, you can still be maintained as a faithful and responsible servant by his power. So that you might see this day, this waging war might go away and be no more. So that you might see his face and hear him say, Son, daughter, welcome home. The war is over. Or to put it in these words, which are much better, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Come share this with me. Come share this rule that I've earned for you forever. Come on over here and recline at the table. Let me serve you with the marriage supper of the Lamb. And now, rise and rule with me. And this morning, church, right here in front of me, before you, is the king's table. And this table sits in a very particular place. You know where it sits? It sits in between the first coming and the second coming. Servants of Jesus, at communion you come forward at his invitation to be fed and renewed. And then you go from it as an announcement that one day you'll rule with him. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to his servants. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took a cup of wine and after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new covenant and the shedding of my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're doing what? You're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Do you know that you preach the gospel every week when you come up to this table with a heart that's open to the Lord Jesus Christ? Today we are announcing in light of this judgment, amen, even so. Come, Lord Jesus. Our invitation this morning is to come forward, to break off a piece of bread, to dip it into the juice. There's going to be gluten-free available over here on this side. 
So not at this station, but to the side of this station. So if you need that, that will be available to you. Normal stations will be on both the left and the right. Our invitation is if you're a follower of Jesus, a servant of Jesus, you'd come and celebrate with us whether or not you're a member of this church. If you're not a believer, our invitation to you is not to come to this table, but to come to Christ himself. He has revealed himself today through his word and by the power of his spirit to your heart, which I hope that has been cut. And that your heart could be healed from that cutting this morning because you open it up to Jesus Christ by turning away from your midnight doorbell knocking, whatever that looks like for you. And you instead say, no, I want to live for Jesus Christ and be responsible for the day of his return so that I might see his face and be rewarded. That's the invitation. There'll be pastors in the back to pray with anyone who has any need. Would you come? Like, would you come to us? Like, I can't come up here and be like, one more verse. Let's keep it going, Aaron. I'm in the back, you know? Aaron wouldn't li- probably wouldn't like that too much. So come back. Let us pray with you, encourage you. Ask the Lord's help over your life. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you this morning. We are grateful that we can call you Father through the finished work of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the power of your word. Lord, if it was not for your word, we would probably avoid topics like the coming judgment. And yet we see in your word that which can cut us to the heart and yet that which also can heal a cut heart. Lord, I pray that you would do such a work in this moment that everyone in this room and everyone who's listening by the live stream and everyone who will listen to the sermon at any time in the future, Lord, that their heart would be cut now so that it would not be cut later at your return. Lord, I pray for a holy response according to your Spirit's leadership that we would seek to be a people who are prepared for you because we know that we'll be responsible to you. May you make this church a church of wise and faithful servants. And Lord, as we come to the table, I pray that you would be glorified in the remembrance of your first coming and in the announcement of your second. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.